Men and women are different. And uh, even though we use the same word, sometimes we mean totally, totally different things. Um, and not only do I see this in my marriage, um, it, but I also see this living with two little kids of opposite gender. Um, like when my son wants a banana, here's what he does. You know, my son is 18 months. He doesn't really talk much yet. And so my son um, will go to the pantry. He'll open the pantry door. He'll take his step stool out of the pantry push this thing up against the counter, climb up on the counter, and then wherever I am will bring me the basket of bananas. And then I'll say, and he'll just go, and I'll say, you want a banana? And so I'll I'll peel it for him, and then he walks away. My daughter, on the other hand, who's four, um, will say, Papi, I'm hungry. Okay, Mama, what do you want to eat? Well, I'm thinking of something yellow. And you peel it, and then you can eat it. And I say, so you want a Twinkie? And, I'll, it's just, and then she'll say, no, silly, I mean a banana. And then she'll say, by the way, what's a Twinkie? And Because uh, she's four, and she's never had one. Um, because, more because my wife says it will kill them. But anyway. Um, but, uh, the, you know, it, it's just a, it's a, it's the weirdest thing. And, and many times, listen... We don't understand each other, and, and, and we communicate something and, and mean something else. And that's one of the things that can make marriage difficult. The other thing that makes marriage difficult is when we don't operate within the roles that God has given to us. Um, God's design for marriage is for husbands and wives to have specific roles. And when we operate outside of those roles, listen, it creates friction, tension, resentment in marriage, because we're not living out the roles that were given, or we're not living up to the roles that were given. And that's why for the next two weeks, we're really going to drill down on what some people believe is a bit of a controversial subject, and that is the roles of, of husbands and wives. But here's the reason why people think that it's, uh, it's a controversial subject. The reason is, is because, not because they've actually seen like what the Bible teaches lived out. But what they've seen many times is just a distortion of what the Bible actually teaches. So they haven't seen this physical expression with their parents or, or some other couple that, they've, that they know and care about and, and respect. Instead, what they've seen is not what the scriptures teach. They've seen this distorted, funhouse mirror version of what some think is actually the biblical roles of husbands and wives. And, and I can tell you this, is that the, the funhouse mirror version... It's not beautiful. It's not holy. It, it's grotesque. It's, it's ugly. And it's ungodly. But when you see a couple that are really living out what God intended, their marriage becomes like this dance. Where, I mean, they're, they're each taking a step and it just, one, they just are, are moving together both in this amazing way. And even though one is taking a step forward and the other is taking a step back, they're, they're moving together. And it's beautiful to watch, it's amazing to watch, it's glorious to watch. Because when we see God's design for marriage, and we see couples doing it the way that they're supposed to be doing it, you know what we actually see? We see, really, God's image. Because here's the thing, when we talk about roles, and we talk about leadership in the home and all of that, it's not about which gender is better than the other. It's not about which gender is superior than the other. All we're really talking about is accountability and responsibility. We're talking about God's design. Because the thing, if you haven't been with us since the beginning of this series, we talked about this. We said that both men and women are equal. 
We're equal in God's sight. We're equal because we're both created in God's image. And we're both, uh, and both men and women reflect and reveal God's nature to a world that doesn't know Him. The writer of Genesis, Moses would say it this way in Genesis 1. It says, so God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. So we both, men and women, reflect God's image. But here's the thing. So it's not about superiority. It's not about power. Listen, it's about reflecting who God is. And when you see a couple, a husband and a wife, both doing what God has called them to do, you know what you see? The two of them together, you see them reflecting God's image in a way that few other things can. And so today we're going to talk about the husband's role in marriage. And the reason that I decided to talk about the husband's first is because if I talked about the wives first, some of the guys would come down with like a mysterious illness uh, and be like, oh, you know, I can't go. Why? I have a flesh eating bacteria, but I'll be back next week. Uh, and, and so I figured so I'm, we're going to talk to the guy. This is my preemptive strike uh, on, on the guys next week. My wife, Carrie, and I will both be teaching together for the first time, by the way, uh, here on this stage. Uh, yeah. And trust me, you do not want to miss that because you really want to hear what she has to say much more than what I have to say on, on, on the subject. Um, but before we get going, and I have a lot that I want to tell you, um, but I want to, I, I want to just say three things and talk to three different groups, if I can, before we get started. So um, if, if you're a woman here and you're single, if, I just want to talk to you for a moment, if I could. I, the, the first thing I want to say is you need to be taking notes. I mean, copious notes. Because what we're going to talk about, this is the guy you're looking for. And this is the template of, of, of what you're looking for. And listen, if you settle for anything less, your life will be incredibly frustrating. Because you're going to be bumping up against this every day of your marriage. The second thing is this, is that if wives, if you're married, if I, if I, can, if I can talk to you wives for a moment, I'm going to ask that you not... Use what I'm going to share with you as a weapon against your husband. Now, if you want to nudge him in the ribs a couple times just to make sure he's awake and listening, we'll go with that. That's okay. Um, but but here's, here's the thing. Don't hurt him with what I'm going to share with you. Instead, help him with what I'm going to share with you. Because, listen, part of your role as a wife is to help him become the man God wants him to be by encouraging him to, to make the right choices. And then, guys, if I can just talk to you, um, I, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to push pretty hard. Um, and uh, the reason is this, is because this is the man that God's calling us to be, what we're going to read about in Ephesians 5 in just a moment. And if you want, you can turn there. Um, but so I, here's what I, I, I want you to think of me, if I could, is, is like that coach, that guy, that, that maybe that trainer um, that, that is saying, you know, one more set, you know, come on, let's do one more lap. I mean, we, you can do this. I believe in you that you can do this. So maybe in some ways, like a father talking to his son saying, listen, I see this in you. I believe in you that this is who you can become. I really believe that's that's the role that, 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 that I'm that I have um, today. And because God is calling us to a higher level of living, God's calling us to a higher level of discipleship. And guys, if I can just say this for a moment, here, here's what I know. I know that some of you grew up without dads at home, and no one taught you um, how to be a man. And, and there, there's good news and bad news to this. The bad news is this. Um, I'm sorry that your dad wasn't there. And, and the bad news is that it would have made a huge difference in your life. But you can't change that. You can't change what it is that's happened. 
But the good news is this. This is what the Bible teaches. God says, I am the father to the fatherless. So if you didn't grow up with a dad or your dad wasn't around, you have no idea even who your dad is. Listen to what God says. God says, I'm going to be your dad. And this God, who's not a larger version of your earthly father who wasn't there. No, instead, he's the perfection of your earthly father that he could never become. You see, and this, if maybe your dad wasn't around, but here's what God says. He says this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so if you grew up without a dad and you say, well, I didn't, nobody taught me what it means to be a man. Well, now you have, if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father who wants to show you what it means to be a godly man, to be a godly husband, to be a man that your, your wife, to be a man that your kids can look up to and be proud of. So let's start in Ephesians 5, if you would, starting in verse 25. Here's what it says. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Pause there, please, and give me your attention. I want to share with you three things that God calls husbands to. The first is this. God calls husbands. Husbands are called to servant leadership. Servant leadership. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me explain, if I could, what it isn't, and then we'll talk about what it is. Um, Monday evening, my wife uh, had to head out for a little while, and uh, so I was at home uh, with the kids for a bit. And my daughter, Mia, who's four, wanted to play with my son, um, Alexander, who is uh, 18 months. But my son was a little more interested in what was going on in the living room and didn't want to play with her in her bedroom. So after, you know, she tells Xander, let's go play in my bedroom. And he says no and then goes into the living room. Then she says, Xander, go into my bedroom. And then he won't go. So anyway, then I, I'm sitting at the dining room table um, typing some stuff out. And, and what happens is, <coughs> pardon me, is that then I hear my son really like, ah, you know, like, making some weird noises. And so I, I, I peek out and I see my, my daughter has grabbed my son by both of his arms and she's dragging him into uh, her bedroom. And he's kicking and screaming the whole tri- time trying to fight this from happening. And so I, 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 I stop. I'm like, what's going on here? And Mia says, Bobby, I want Xander to come in my room and play with me. And I'm like, well, Mia, you can't force him. Listen, instead of pushing him, don't push him, lead him. And I just I said it just like that. I'm like, just do it with me like this. Don't push him, lead him. Just like that, lead him. And she says, um, okay, Bobby, but this works a lot better. <laughs> right? And, and, and I'm like, you think it does, you know? And, and, and I looked at the two of them and I'm like, this is like a picture of most marriages. One person trying to drag the other person to do what the other person doesn't want to do. And so it's like, well, I, I asked them to do it, and then they didn't want to do it, so I just figured I'd drag them to do it, and that would be the best thing. Listen, God calls husbands to leadership in the home. But real leadership is not forcing people to do stuff. Real leadership is not pushing people to do things. Real leadership is service. Real leadership is serving And showing people by example and through your actions where it is that you want them to go. You see, Jesus is the perfect model of this principle. He didn't just tell his disciples what to do and then kick back. No, instead, here's what he did. He modeled servant leadership by doing for his disciples what he wanted them to do. In the notes that we gave you, 
Um, some of you know the story in John 13 where Jesus has the Passover meal, what is sometimes called the Last Supper, but it's the Passover meal with his disciples. And then um, he gets up from, from the table, he takes a towel and wraps it around and he washes the disciples' feet, which is the role for the lowliest of servants. And um, Jesus, being the, the host of the feast, actually takes the position of the lowliest servant and washes the feet of the disciples. And then this, this is what it says. We're going to pick it up here in your notes in verse 12. Here's what it says. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his, ro- his clothes and, and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Guys, this is what a husband is called to do. To be servant leaders in their home. You see, in these verses that we read in Ephesians, Paul says... Husbands, love your wives. But he doesn't just leave it open-ended. like, And then you kind of decide your own definition of what love is. He says this, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That is how a husband is to love his wife. How? Through servanthood. Through sacrifice. You see, the way he proved his love, the book of Romans, not in your notes, just write Romans 5.8, you can look it up later. But Romans 5.8 says this, that Christ demonstrated his love for us, for while even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know that he proves his love for us through his, the sacrifice of his life and his service to us. He proved his love by giving his life. Here's the first rule of leadership. This is true in marriage. This is true in church. This is true in the workplace if you're in a position of leadership. But here's what it is. Whatever arena of life that you have a level of leadership and authority, let me just share with you the first rule of leadership. And that is this. Leadership is not about you. Leadership is not about you. You aren't the leader so that you can have your way. You're the leader so that you can serve those entrusted to your care. That's what God-honoring leadership looks like. Husbands, that means you lead your wife by loving her. You don't bark orders. You don't say, because I said so. You don't say, we're doing this and that's that. That's not love. You sound a lot more like a third world dictator than you do Jesus. And that's just not the kind of leadership that God calls us to. Men, if you want your wife to submit to you, because a lot of guys aren't really sure what God says to the husbands, but he's re- they're, they're real clear on what God says to the wife. The only verse they have memorized is Ephesians 5.22. It says, husbands, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Like, I know that verse says. I'm not sure about the other stuff, and I know that one. And, uh, but guys, listen. Do you want your wife to submit to you? Love her like Jesus. The reason that wives have issue or take exception to submitting to their husbands is because of trust. They don't trust their husbands. And here's, here's the feeling, and she may not say this, but I'm going to say it for her. She feels, listen, if, if she won't submit to you, it's because she feels that you will abuse it. You will abuse the position of leadership that you're given and make her a doormat to your selfish desires. And guys, the only thing that combats that is loving her sacrificially. You want to make it easy for your wife to submit to you? Here's the deal. You be submitted to Jesus. You be submitted to God. And you know what you'll find? As you're submitted to Christ, 
is that it's much easier for her to follow your lead. And here's how she knows. Here's how she knows that you're submitted to Christ. is because you put your family's desires, your wife's desires, and the needs of your wife and of your kids before your own desires. You put it before what you want. You put it before what is going to be best for you, and you do what's best for them. That's what sacrificial servant leadership is really all about. Oh, and by the way, um, she doesn't have to submit to you if you're asking her to do something that's ungodly. Huh? What? Uh, what's that? Yeah. Think about this. I, I put the notes in your outline, but I'm just going to paraphrase. Romans 13 says this. Essentially, it says this. That the government has been established by God. So obey the law. Because if you don't, you're going to experience the judgment of the government, whatever that might be. But see, at the same time, that's what it says. That whatever the laws that have been set in place, obey them. So we live here in America, you obey the law because that's the law. The Bible says that God, there's no government that's been established except that God has allowed it. So that if that's the case, then in Acts chapter 5, which I, I put in your notes, here's what the Bible says. That the disciples get taken before a group of people called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, is, uh, they, it was the ruling council in uh, Judaism. In many ways, we might say that they were like the Supreme Court of Judaism. It was 71 members. And um, they, they bring the, the apostles before the, the, the Sanhedrin and they say, didn't we tell you not to preach in the name of Jesus? Because now you've filled the name, Jerusalem with his teaching and your, your, in, your intent is to make us guilty of the blood of this man that was crucified. And yet here's, and then the apostles respond, we, gotta, we have to continue to preach because we're going to obey God and not men. So let me see if I get this right. God says, obey the authorities. But then we have an example in the book of Acts where the apostles say, I'm sorry, we can't obey the law here. Why? Because the law at the time was asking them to do something that was wrong, something that was ungodly. The point is this, is that if you ask your wife to do something that's clearly against the teachings of the Bible, she is free not to submit to your authority. Why? Because you have nullified your leadership through your disobedience to God's word. Guess what, buddy? The only reason that she's submitting to you and listening to you is because of God's word. So if you're deciding, though, I want you to listen to God's word, but I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I want. You have nullified your leadership in your home. And now you have no recourse or moral authority to, to stand on by way of saying, well, she won't submit to me. Well, guess what, buddy? You're not listening to God either. And as you're not submitting to God, you're asking her to do something ungodly. She has every right to say no. The servant leader... His wife doesn't have a problem submitting. You know why? Because she knows that his greatest desire is to do God's will and to do what's best for his family. And that's why she says, I'm happy to follow because you make it easy to follow. Look at what happens. We'll start in verse 25 again, but we'll read through verse 27. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing that I want you to note. Husbands are called to servant leadership. 
The second thing that I want you to note is that husbands are called to spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership. The primary responsibility in our home is, is spiritual in nature. Um, my daughter and my son actually get along very well, but the funny stories happen when they don't get along, and that's why you usually hear about those. Um, but the same day that Mia was dragging Xander into her room, she was trying to do the right thing, but kind of went about it the wrong way. Now, here's what you have to understand. My son is 18 months old. His goal in life is to climb everything. doesn't matter what it is. He wants to climb it and conquer it. And um, so, for example, the thing that he likes climbing the most is the entertainment center in our living room. Because he likes climbing on top of the entertainment center so he doesn't just watch the TV and see his friends on TV. He can touch them. So he likes to climb on the TV. He don't want to just watch Mickey Mouse. He wants to touch Mickey Mouse. So he tries to climb on the entertainment center. And so what he used to do was we have this, um, this subwoofer next to our entertainment center. And what he would do is climb on top of the subwoofer and then climb on top of the entertainment center. So I said, all right, I'll fix that. So I put the subwoofer on top of the entertainment center. Now the problem is solved. Well, then my son started thinking like how, because this is all he does is devise plans as to how he's going to climb. So we used to have this, and an operative word is here is used to, uh, we'd have this toy box um, in, in the living room for stuff that they play with, the kids play with all the time. So he pushes out the toy box, and he flips it over and dumps out all the toys, and then he stands on top of the toy box and then gets on top of the entertainment center. And that, that time, he, he like... He wasn't even looking. He's like, ah, and we went into the living room and he was like this. Ah, I've conquered this mountain. You know, I was like, all right, buddy, let's come down before somebody gets hurt. And um, so anyway, so I said, well, I'll just take the toy box out. So the toy box is now in the garage. And uh, so that now he can't he can't get to this anymore. Well, then he decided that the next thing to do was um, he has this little R2D2 chair. It's like this little chair for him. And uh, it's his size, but it's. Uh, it has a, you know, R2-D2 on it. And um, so he's trying to get up, and so he tried to just push the chair up to it and then stand on the side, and then the whole thing flipped over and he fell on his head, and that didn't work out well for him. But he didn't stop there because he's industrious. So what he did was he figured if I flip the chair over, I can create like a ramp that goes all the way up to the entertainment center, which, by the way, is the same strategy the Romans used in the first century in, in about 72 A.D. at Masada. Now, I don't know how he learned that strategy on how they defeated the, out, the outpost of Masada, but uh, I'll leave that for another time. And um, so he flips over the chair and just climbs up this little ramp on top of the entertainment center. And I'm like, okay. So I take the chair and I put it in his room. He has this little tent in his room and I put it in the tent. And he doesn't know how to get it out. He tries to get it out, but he can't because the opening to the tent is small. The only way you can get it out is if you're big and you pull the tent up, you put the chair underneath, and then you put it back. But he's a little guy. He hasn't figured out how to do that yet. Thank the Lord. So I figure, well, this is the end of it. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, once again, Monday evening, as I, I tell you, I, um, I came, carried an appointment, so I came home a little bit early, but I still had a bunch of stuff to do. So I'm sitting at the dining room table trying to pound it. I'm pounding away on my laptop trying to get stuff done. And um, so I fixed that one crisis of her, him being dragged away, and then I'm back at the table. Well, then I hear, um, well, the thing that, Xander tries this time is he he figured out that if he opens up one of the drawers to the entertainment center he can use that as a stepping stool to get on top of the entertainment center well when he climbed up on on he opened up the drawer um and and he he climbed on the step and then he's getting ready 
I hear, Xander, no climbing on the, on the drawer. And she pushes him down to the floor. Uh, and, and then, of course, he starts crying because that's what happens when you're violently thrashed onto the ground. And uh, so I walk in and I say, I calm Xander down and I say, Mia, what happened? And she says, it's okay, Bobby. I took care of it. Xander wanted to climb up on the entertainment center, but I pushed him down and I told him no. And I'm like, well, Mia, um, do me a first thing. Don't push your brother, okay? You hurt him. So next time, if he does something that you think is wrong, come talk to mommy or Bobby and we'll take care of it. And she says, okay, Bobby, but I really don't want to do that. And I'm like, but I need you to do that, okay? Before someone gets really hurt. And uh, now, here's the, here's the point of why I, I tell you this story of the madness that happens in, in my house. Is that, to me, is the same view of what many wives have of their husbands leading. They think, every time that I'm trying to climb up, every time that I'm trying to, to get ahead, to go to the next level, to go to the next step, I feel like somebody's there to just push me down. And that's why there's, there's this tension that takes place in marriage. And listen, guys, this is the thing that's so important. Headship, which is what the Bible calls husbands leading in the home. Headship works when a husband recognizes that his role at home is spiritual in nature. You aren't there just to call the shots and have everybody serve you. Instead, you're called to be the priest, to be the pastor of your home. And, and I've shared this before, and, 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 and sometimes guys are like... I, I, I'm not sure that's right. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a priest. I mean, God's not calling me to be that. Yes, he is. God's calling you to be the pastor of your home, the spiritual leader of your home. Because, husband, you are responsible for the spiritual development of your family. Whether you accept that responsibility or not, you are accountable to God for the spiritual development of your family. And, and you're going to be held accountable for your faithfulness in that or lack thereof. So what does it mean to be the priest of your home? I mean, practically, what does it look like? Now, let me give you three ways, real practically, if I could, and it's in your notes. The first is this, is that the, pers- the, the husband who is the pastor, the priest of his home, listen, your family is educated in God's word. That's the first thing. Your family's educated in God's word. That means that you lead family devotions together. You teach your kids the scriptures That means you answer the questions that your kids ask. You answer the questions that your wife has about the Bible. That's why there's a reason why the Bible says um, that if if a wife has a question, she should go ask her husband. And sometimes I'll have a wife stop me out here in the breezeway after a service and say, Pastor, I had a question uh, about about one of the things that, that you said. And I said, that's great. You should ask your husband about that. Oh, but since you're here, I thought I'd ask you. I said, yeah, but why don't you go ahead and ask him? And if he has a question, have him call me. Huh? But why is that? Because husband, you're the pastor of your home. You're the one that your family should be looking to for spiritual leadership and guidance. If you need to find some help, listen, we're at your, myself and the other pastors, we are at your disposal and ready to serve. But we are not going to fill in for you and and, uh, and pinch hit for you because you don't want to be the leader of your home. So if your wife has a question about the Bible, guess what? We are going to direct her to ask you. You feel free to call us. And we'll, and we'll train you and disciple you um, as, 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 as best that we know how. But listen, you're the leader. And you've got to do it. 
And, um, and listen, I'm telling you, man, that your kids will ask the craziest questions. And, and they'll ask stuff, and they want answers right then. Like, I, I, I'm dry, my, my daughter, I take my daughter to school every day. And um, on the way to school, we have, like, these amazing conversations. And uh, we were just last week, we're driving to school. And, um, and she's looking out the window, and she's, like, kind of been quiet. And usually she's not that quiet in the morning. And I'm like, Mia, is everything okay? And she says, yes, Bobby. Um, I do have a question, though. I'm like, what's that? Um, why did God make everything? <clears throat> well, um, interesting question that you'd ask. Uh, <clears throat> and then she says, oh, um, I have another question. Why is it that sometimes the moon is out during the day? Uh, um, well, the moon is an interesting fellow. I, you know, I mean, so I said, well, let's deal with the... Can we deal with the philosophy behind the universe first? I think I'm a little more equipped on that one than the science part. Uh, and, 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 and now, here's the thing. Your kids are going to ask hundreds of questions like that. And the question is, do you have an answer for those questions? And listen, if you say, well, what if my son or daughter does ask me, why did God make everything? Your, my wife is sitting next to me. What if she asks me that question? I can't just make something up with her. Do you have an answer? Well, if you say, no, I don't have an answer. Well, you should come out on Wednesday night. We're starting in the book of Genesis. We're going to answer that question and then some, and uh, we'll be able to help you. But here's, here's the thing. The fact that you are, that you want your family to be educated in God's word because you're the spiritual leader, you know what that also means? That means that you are the driving force behind your family coming to church on Sundays. You know that too often the opposite is true. Too often, like, mom is dragging the kids to church and dad's kind of lagging behind. Or he's come up with an excuse as to why, you know, maybe this, this day he's not, he's not going to show up or whatever. Listen, you are responsible. So you know what you need to make sure? Is that, that you're here because that's how you're going to grow and that your family's here because that's one of the ways that they're, that they're going to grow. And listen, a godly husband, a godly father sets the, the spiritual tone for his family and sets the example. That's why in your notes, Joshua says this, you've got to decide who you're going to serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That wasn't an issue. It wasn't done by committee. He didn't say, you know, well, my wife decided we're going to serve the Lord. Well, my kids want, want to go here because we want to. No, he said, listen, I'm the spiritual leader in my home. And we are determined that we are going to serve and follow God. That's why Paul says in that passage in verse 26, he says that, you know, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing with water, by the word. Now, this is very picturesque of, uh, of a Jewish custom. Now, a Jewish custom when a bride was going to be married is that she would go into this ceremonial pool that was called a mikvah in Hebrew. And she would go into the mikvah. She would come out of the mikvah like ceremonially cleansed. And it's after she would come out of the mikvah that she would be clothed and perfumed and, and arrayed in her, in her wedding garments. And so the whole thing is, he says this, you're going to do this cleansing, but you're going to do it through the word, through the word of God, as you train and disciple your family. That's why that word sanctified means, it means it's, it's, a, it's a Greek word that means set apart, but not just set apart, but set apart for a special and holy purpose. When you teach your wife and your kids God's word, you set them apart for God's purposes and you set them apart from the ungodliness in this world. The second thing is this. 
to be a priest in your home, your family is engaged in God's work. They're engaged in God's work. One of the healthiest things that a family can do is serve the Lord together. And husbands, you have to set the tone here. You have to show as a husband that your priority is serving the Lord with the gifts and talents that you've been given. By the way, the language that Paul uses without spot or wrinkle in verse 27, that's priestly language. It's when, when a person would bring their offering to the temple, the priest would examine that offering to see if it was without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. And if it was acceptable, if it didn't have spot, wrinkle, or blemish, then it was brought to be sacrificed. And that's why Paul would pick that up, that same idea up in the book of Romans chapter 12. I put it in your notes. He says, I beseech you. Beseech is a great word. It means I'm begging you. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When you think about all that God has done for you, it is only reasonable for us to give our lives to him. Because husbands, dads, we have to continually point our kids to Jesus. And, and God gives us these moments in their lives. And, and really, it's like ev- almost every day, every week, we're given these moments where we're teaching kids how to walk with God. You can't just cram it all to them in one conversation, but over the course of their lives, you're just dropping these little breadcrumbs that lead them to God. And that's why, listen, you don't realize the kind of influence, or many times husbands and dads don't realize the kind of influence that they have in their home. Do you know how your kids learn to pray? By, by listening to you. When my daughter was, well, I mean, we've always prayed, um, but when my daughter was born, when we would pray at, at, at mealtimes, I, I purposely um, said this very short, simple prayer. And, and now that my now most nights my daughter prays. Um, but here's, here's the thing. She prays the exact words that I prayed. And now I'm trying to get her to vary it up and kind of freestyle a little bit. And, uh, and, and so I'm like, so she'll say, like, dear God, thank you for our family and thank you for this food. And then I'll say, okay, pray for one more thing. And... Um, and God, thank you for my bike. In Jesus' name, amen. And that sometimes she prays for her bike. Sometimes she prays for like the most beautiful things. And, and she's like, and God, thank you for our hearts or something. Thank you for Jesus. I mean, it's like, oh, you know, it's just incredible. Um, but sometimes it's like, and God, thank you for all my toys. Sometimes it's that too. And it's okay to thank God for that. Um, but, but the thing is this, right? But the thing with our kids is they will mimic what we do. Even the stuff we don't want them to mimic, guess what? They're going to mimic. I, I call my son because he's like this acrobat, you know. I mean, he's like climbing up and, you know, he's, he's apparently uh, going to be a mountain climber or something later in life. And um, so I'll say to him, whenever I see him, like on top of the entertainment center, I'm like, what are you doing, you crazy kid? All right, that, so that's kind of my thing. Like, you know, Xander, you're a crazy kid. I tell him that. And, um, or sometimes I'll say to me, I'm like, Mia, your brother is a crazy kid. And she's like, you're telling me. And... Uh, and so, and then the other day I hear Mia saying to Xander, Xander, you're a crazy kid. And I'm like, should Mia be calling her brother crazy? And I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I mean, it's true, but I'm not really sure if it's right. But, but it's just a funny thing. Like, I, I may not want her to repeat. Guess what? She's mim- mimicking and modeling everything because that's what you do. That's the kind of influence that, 
that dads have. Why? Because we're spiritual leaders. We're the priest of our home and our family is following our lead. Listen, guys, the thing that you complain about all the time. Watch and you'll hear your wife begin to complain about it, too. Why? Because we're influencers, we're influencers in our home. And the things that we value and the things that we complain about and the things that we talk about and the things that we praise, our family will do the same because God has given us a gift of leadership. And we are either going to lead them where we're supposed to lead them or we're going to lead them somewhere else. But we're going to lead them somewhere. Here's the third thing, quickly. Your family, if you're going to be the priest of your home, your family is established in God's grace. They're established in God's grace. I want you to note something here in the passage in verse 27. It's a bit of a nuance, but it's important to note. He says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Those two words, those two Greek words for holy and without blemish appear one other place in the same book of Ephesians, only in chapter one. And here's what Paul says. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. Another translation, same word or without blemish before him in love. In Ephesians one, Paul is talking about how God has chosen us for salvation. And so he's chosen us for salvation. But the point that Paul makes is this. You're washing your family, you're washing your wife with the word of God so that she can be holy and without blemish. What is he saying? So that your family will be saved. So your family knows Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. Listen, as, as a husband, it's your job to ma- not only to make sure that your family knows the gospel, but they need to be able to know what it means and to, to be established in the grace of God, to be trained in God's grace, to understand and know the love of God. You say, oh, isn't that kind of a personal decision? Of course it's a personal decision. But guess what? You didn't make your decision to follow Jesus in a vacuum. Instead, you know what happened? You had godly people around you that were praying for you, that were modeling what it means to be a Christian. And then at the right time, God brought you here or some other place. And you heard the gospel and you responded. How much more in our home? How much more in our home when... Our kids are looking to us. Guys, can I tell you something? If you're a dad, you are modeling what God is like to your kids. And their belief about who God is will be largely based on you. And it's not to say that moms aren't important or anything like that, but what it, it is what it is. That kids are looking to their dads to know what God is like. And listen, um, do you know what kids who grow up without, uh, they either come from a divorced home or they grow up not knowing their dad at all. Do you know what they struggle with? And I'm telling you that I, hundreds of guys that I've talked to over the years, hundreds, and they all tell me the same thing. They grew up, they didn't know their dad, they grew up in a divorced home and they, they, they saw their dad intermittently. Here's the thing that they struggle with. They're just not sure if God is really there for them. You know why? Because dad wasn't really there for them. And the fear that they have 
and giving themselves wholly to the Lord and giving themselves totally to God and really walking with Jesus with reckless abandon, saying, I'm going wholeheartedly. Is here's the thing that they fear. They say this. They say, I just don't know if the moment that I'm really going to need God, if he's really going to be there for me. Or am I really going to need him and he's, I'm going to get left holding the bag? Why? Because that's what they've experienced. And someone modeled a God that wasn't there for them. That's why, my friends, I'm telling you, it's so important that what you do in working on your marriage, and, and I commend you for being here, is listen, because you're modeling for your kids what God is like. And now here's, here's the thing. Now you might be here and, and, and maybe um, things didn't work out with you and your wife and maybe that experience is what caused you to come to know Jesus. And you're like, well, now what do I do? I mean, if I like irreparably hurt these kids that I love so much, it just didn't work out. Um, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I would love to tell you that, well, you know, if you're just there, everything's going to be okay. It'll be totally the same. It will not be totally the same. It will not be totally the same. However, I mean, there, you, you, will your kids still struggle with this? Whether God is God really there for them? Yes. But you can greatly reduce the impact of that. Greatly reduce the damage of that. If you will be consistent. If you will say, I am going to be a part of their lives... I mean, as much as I can be. They've got a game. I'm going to be there when they when they stay over with me. I want them to stay over longer if I can, because the point is this. I will not allow that. I will not allow them to go to, to, to go through life wondering the same question that maybe you're wondering, too. Is God really there for me? And that means you're going to have to be very frank and honest with them and say, listen, this happened and this is a mistake that I made. And I know that part of the price that that um, is paid for this, you're going to have to pay. And I'm deeply sorry for that. But I want you to know that I am going to do whatever it takes to be the kind of father that models for you what God is really like. And one of the ways that I can model for you what God is really like is that the God that we serve, the God that I follow, is a God of second chances. And I blew my first chance but I'm not going to blow the second chance with you. Listen, you do that. It's not going to be perfect. But you will greatly reduce the impact because, my friends, our kids are looking to us to model what salvation is, to model who God is in their lives. Last two verses, and then I'm done. Verse 27, or 28. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The last thing is this, is that husbands are called to loving leadership. Loving leadership. How are we to love our wives? He says this. It's the same way you love yourself. Like, guess what? You know, everybody loves themselves. I would even say this. Everyone is madly in love with themselves. That's why you're always on your mind. Because you're always thinking about everything within the context of you. Right? It's like, that their person is really nice. Why? Their person's really nice. Why? Because you feel nice when you're around them. Right? Because we're always on our mind. And so the issue is this. So 
Paul says, listen, here's the deal. So the, the same way that you love yourself, you do anything for yourself, right? I want you to know I'd do anything for me, right? Everybody is. Everybody would. He says, love your, love your wife that way, right? And if you question whether, oh, do I? No, I don't love myself. I hate myself. It's like the kid who's talking to his sister and um, his sister says, I hate myself. And the brother says, well, why do you hate yourself? And she says, because I'm ugly. And the brother says, well, if you hated yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. See, it just doesn't, doesn't really make sense. If you didn't get that, you'll get it on the way home. Um, and, but the whole thing is this. God is telling us, listen, you love your wives the same way that you want to be loved. You love them. Now, what that doesn't mean is like, you know what I would love is the baseball package from DirecTV. I'm going to give that to my wife because that's how I want to be loved. That's not what he's saying. Okay. What he's saying is, is that with the same passion and, 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 and abandon that you love yourself and would do anything for yourself, do that for them. Do that for your wife. If I can talk to the singles for just a moment. Um, ladies, two questions you need to ask yourself before you even entertain the thought of this man being a candidate for marriage. Two questions. Can this man lead me? Question number two, can I submit to him? If either of those questions is no or eh, I'm not really sure, you need to run in the other direction. Because if you're not sure that this guy loves Jesus enough to lead you, or he's just not really that wise, listen, you're going to have a very frustrating life if you marry him. And it's not like, oh, we'll just kind of pick it up along the way. No. You see, marriage doesn't actually eliminate the problems. It only magnifies the problems. And see, because you say, well, because ultimately, he has to lead. He has to lead. And if you don't choose wisely, you're going to pick a guy who will lead you off a cliff. But he's going to lead you somewhere. You want to pick a guy that's going to lead you to where it is that God wants you to go. And that's why I tell single girls, I say, listen, you find a guy that is so on fire for God that he's got smoke coming out of his shoes. Right? I mean, this is, he's, he's just serious. A guy that you respect as a Christian, not a guy that you've got to pull up to your level, but someone that you respect as a Christian. And whose primary concern is growing in the grace of God. Wives, next week is all about you, all right? But here's, here's, what, here's your challenge in all this, is to let him lead. In fact, as the, as the helper, which um, Genesis 2 calls the, the wife, and, and before you freak out about that, the helper is, is the Hebrew word ezer konegdo, which, by the way, is most often used of God himself. The Psalms say this, that God is our help. God is our Ezra Konegdo. Um, your job, your role is to help him lead well. Because sometimes, this isn't all the time, but sometimes um, a man doesn't take the lead because his wife makes it impossible for him to lead. Is he going to make mistakes? Of course he is. Because perfection is not a prerequisite of leadership. Even the best and greatest leaders make, mistake, make mistakes. But the, the issue is, will you be a help to him? And even at times, save him from himself and the foolish decision that he's going to make. Because his job is to follow Jesus as closely as he can and to love you like Christ. But your job is to let him lead. And that doesn't mean you have to blindly follow everything he says or agree to everything that he says. But it means that that you talk, that you challenge each other, that you draw each other closer to God. 
But in the end, when a decision has to be made, he's the one that's accountable. We're going to talk about this next week. But I just say this. I know what you're afraid of. I know what you're afraid of. And I've talked to so many wives over the years, and this is the thing they say. If I let him lead, he'll take advantage of me. If I let him lead, I will become a doormat for his selfish plans and desires. And I'm not saying that there aren't husbands who abuse their role and who look a lot more like, you know, Middle East dictators than, than Jesus. But here's the thing that I also know. Is that a man cannot demand headship or leadership in his home. He cannot demand it. He can only earn it. And wives, here's the deal. He can only earn it, and you're the only one that can give it to him. That's the influence that that women have, and we'll talk about that next time. Guys, this this is where we park the car or land the plane. This is it. This is the husband, the guy that we just read about in Ephesians. This is the man you want to be. But listen, it takes putting away some childish things. We are living in a society that one sociologist called Peter Pan syndrome. He's not a boy and he's not a man. He's something else. And that's why we just call them guys. I just read a study that this year... um, Men spend eight hours a week at work, on average, every week, eight hours of work, tweaking their fantasy football team. Think about that. That is one full day of work. And then a guy will say, I don't understand why I'm not getting promoted. There's a reason. But you'll probably have to stop playing fantasy football to find out what that reason is. Well, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, guess what? Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things away. You want to be a god, you want a godly marriage that lasts a lifetime, here's what it takes. You have to man up. And you've got to decide that you are going to be the man that God calls you to be. Because you and I have been given a tremendous responsibility. And our, our wives should be loving Jesus more because of us. But you know what I have learned in, in my experience is that many times just the opposite is true. They draw closer to Jesus not because of us, but in spite of us. And men, here, here's the thing. Listen, I touched on it earlier. I, I know that some of you grew up without a dad. I know some of you don't even know who your dad is. And so you got married. And you kind of picked up along the way what you thought it meant to be a man. And you learned it on the street. You learned it on TV. Or you just some guy and his machismo and you thought that's what being a man is. Guys, can I tell you this? That machismo and all that, that's the antithesis of what being a man is. Machismo is a boy putting on his father's suit to prove that he's a man. All it proves is that he's actually a child. What does a man look like? In John chapter 19, this is where we close. In John 19, Jesus has been beaten. He's been arrested. He's been put on six trials through the night. And they bring him now. It's, it's early morning in Rome, or early morning in, in Jerusalem. It's the day of the Passover. And they, are, they take him to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea at that time. 
And they say to him, well, we want you to put this guy to death. He says, I, I see no fault in him. And so what he think, Pilate thinks is if I have him beaten, then they'll want to let him go. And so they have, Pilate has Jesus beaten severely. And um, he has him beaten or what's called scourged. And what the scourging was, was um, I want you to think of a whip, but not just a regular whip. I want you to think of a handle that's maybe about 12 inches long. And at the end, which is the, the, the handle of it, but then instead of one whip, imagine nine, which is called the cat of nine tails. And at the, at the ends of these, at, the, at each whip, is pieces of bone and steel, shards of glass, and even uh, sharp stones in there. Because the whole point is, is as you would lay this uh, prisoner, whoever it was that you're interrogating, over a, a large rock, that you would then whip him. And the whole point is, is that once the cat of nine tails got its claws in him, that you would begin to pull back. And as you did, you would begin to rip the flesh of his back off. And that after a few of those things, all that a person's back would be left is just like hamburger. Just absolutely destroying the muscle and tissue and skin of his back. During the scourging, which by the way, was 39 lashes Most men died during the scourging. The, the others that lived would confess to whatever it is they needed to confess to to make it stop. The Bible says that Jesus didn't say one word. And expecting him to be dead, they bring him back to Pilate in front of the crowd that's gathered now in what's called the Praetorium right next to the temple there in, in uh, Jerusalem. It was there at the time. And Pilate amazed that this Jesus is still alive. And not only still alive, but still standing. He says three words. Behold the man. Behold the man. That this is what a man really looks like. This is how a man operates. This is the model for what manhood really is. He was willing to die and feel excruciating pain for the sake of you and me, the church, his bride. And Jesus is our model for what it means to be a godly husband who says, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it is I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of my bride. Now, man, I know that you'd be willing to give your life for your wife if the moment came. I know that. But I'm asking you to do something else as well. I'm asking you to model Jesus to her by sacrificing what you want for the sake of what's best for your family. Because men, we're called to lead. Not like a dictator. But like Jesus. To lead through service, through sacrifice, through godly love, to, call, to, to lead like him. Because, um, and if you want to lead like this, if you want to lead like Jesus, you have to know Jesus. If you want to lead like Jesus, and, and you've got to experience the forgiveness and, and the grace and the salvation that only comes uh, from coming to Jesus and asking him to forgive you. It's the starting place to becoming the man that God wants you to be. It begins when you come to God and you ask him to be your father. And then as you come to him through Christ, through the cross, Asking him to be your father. He teaches you what a father is supposed to teach you.
how to be a man, how to lead, and how to love like him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for um, modeling for us what real love is. Thank you for modeling for us what real leadership is. And Lord, our prayer, our hope, is that we would be the, the men, the women, that you've called us to be, and that our marriages would picture who you are so that those who don't know you would be drawn close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.